like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan. You and us. So a little bit of trivia. What movie, what classic, well, classic now, I guess you can, can consider it, horror movie was that clip I just rolled for you? What was that from? Leave a comment down below when I post this podcast. But I'm going to tell you anyway, in case you don't know, it was from The Exorcist 1973. And so was the theme music I just played for y'all earlier. Why, hello there. Once again, it's Tori from Demimond Paranormal, bringing you another episode in our podcast. In tonight's episode, we will be focusing on um, cursed films, and also films that have been based off of true stories. So, for example, we're going to be talking about films such as A Haunting in Connecticut, um, Deliver Us from Evil, and also the very famous Conjuring movies. So I hope you join us for that. And one more thing I wanted to mention for y'all is that we will be doing... um, Another podcast on Friday night, and that will be on one of our haunted countries that we will pick later on in the week. I'm still not sure which country we're going to zero in on this week since we did Scotland last week. But also leave a comment down below which country you would like to see being in the spotlight for the very first week of June. Alright, let's just... Dive right in. I'll see you guys in our next segment. See you soon. Okay, and welcome to our first segment of tonight's episode. Um, in this segment, I'm going, I'm going to be taking you to 17 films that are supposedly cursed or, or and or haunted in some way, meaning that there were strange occurrences happening on set or happening to the actors while they were filming these movies. Our first film is the 1968 classic Rosemary's Baby, which which was directed by Roman Polanski and produced by William Castle. The screenplay was by Roman Polanski again, but it was based off a book, which was called Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin, starring Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Maurice Evans, and Ralph Bellamy. So we all know the um, basic storyline of Rosemary's Baby. A couple moves into a new apartment and they meet their strange and eccentric new 
neighbors who turn out to be in a cult and the father of the baby is not the actual father but Satan himself. But also, apparently, Mosemary's baby also deals with things related to paranoia and women's liberation and also Christianity, Christianity, Christianity and also the occult. So what makes it cursed, you ask? Well, apparently, the producer of the film, William Castle, was convinced Roman Polanski's 1968 thriller was cursed because after its release, he was hospitalized with kidney stones. And then after experiencing hallucinations during his near-death experience, he claimed to have seen the film's lead actor approaching him with a kitchen knife. Also in the following year, Roman Polanski's wife, who we all know as Sharon Tate, who was killed by the Manson clan in 1969, she was murdered, infamously. And they're all linking that to the film itself. So there's one bad thing after another. So what do you think? Do you think that Rosemary's baby was cursed? Or do you think that all these occurrences were just coincidental? You let me know in the comments as we travel to our next film. Coming now to our second film of the episode here. We have The Exorcist Night. 1973. Now, a little Ellen Burstyn details a very terrifying incident in which a fire burned down the majority of the set right down to the ground. Destroy, this, despite destroying the, interior, the interiors of the McNeil family home, it has absolutely left the bedroom of the possessed Reagan, who was the possessed child that I've rolled the clip of before we got into our actual episode tonight. The bedroom of little Reagan, that room was completely untouched and unravaged by this fire. And also, I just want to add that I did read somewhere, and I've heard it twice now, that I don't know if you guys know ever seen The Exorcist, but you leave me down in the comments. I've seen it a few times, but if you're familiar with the film, and you've seen the part when they're testing Reagan for something that's wrong with her, and they take her into the hospital to do the psychiatric evaluations and stuff like that, and actually, you know, see what's going on with her little brain. One of the doctors that are in there is supposedly a murderer in real life. So that's also kind of creepy. I mean, me personally, I always thought the film had bad juju around it. And I want to get into that a little bit more after we get through these films. But, like, I feel like 
movies that have a lot of heavy spiritualism, good and evil, or just any type of spiritualism, they may even be like the Passion of the Christ, is bound to have some type of spiritual energy that would cause not, not exactly bad um, incidents, but just strange incidents that can't be explained. That's, that's what I think. You guys let me know down in the comments or, you know, reach me on Anchor or something. You let me know what you think. Alright, so our next film of the night is, if you guessed it, it's The Omen 1976. Okay, this is the original Omen. Now, this film has been plagued by lots of terrible incidents. Alright, to start with. The lead actor, Gregory Peck, and the writer, David Seltzer, were on planes that were struck by lightning just to pop off the- do the honors. If you're already struck by lightning, you know, filming this movie might be a, you know, a pretty sure sign that something's about to go wrong and there's something larger at play. Also, the stuntman standing in for Gregory Peck during the infamous rabbit dog scene was actually attacked by Rottweilers that bit through the protective gear he was wearing. So wait, what are the odds of that, honestly? I, I just feel like that would all just be a little bit too much of coincidence. I think maybe something's trying to tell you something something be it some type of spirit or whatever have you but that is just absolutely mind-boggling that it just happened to be they attacked right through the protective gear he was wearing um another thing a zookeeper on set was to tame the baboons was mauled to death by a lying the day after competing completing their work So there is definitely something about this film. I, th I don't think I've ever actually personally seen The Omen um, in its originality, but honestly, that is absolutely crazy. And then, most tragically, after filming was completed, special effects director John Richardson and his assistant Liz Moore were involved in a very serious car accident. Now listen to this. Moore was decapitated in the in an in incident that echoed one of the most disturbing scenes in the omen. Isn't that oh my god, that is absolutely frightening. Personally, if I ever believed in cursed films, I would say that this one definitely would be the one to be cursed. That in The Exorcist. This one has me about 75... Well, got me about... If I had to give a rating or a percentage, I'd say about 70% sure that that might be cursed. That's just too many incidents. And we're moving on to number four on our little list here. We got the Amityville Horror. 1979. Now, while filming this this movie, James Brolin 
claimed that there was a ghostly presence that pushed him into appearing in the Amberleyville horror. He was thinking about the role when the, an item of clothing fell off a hanger in his bedroom and it spooked the living crap out of him. Also, Ryan Reynolds, who was the lead star in the 2005 remake, would later claim to have woken up at 3.15 every night, otherwise known as the witching hour, as we all know, and he had no rhyme or reason to do it. He just, every night he woke up at 3.15. So that's something interesting. You guys let me know once again what you think about that one. I don't know about cursed per se, but there is some, some type of spectral energy going on there. And on to number five of our little list here. We have Poltergeist 1982, alright? Now, child star Oliver Robbins claimed that he nearly died after being choked by the arms of an evil puppet, the evil clown puppet featured in the film. A few years after the film was released, young actor Heather O'Rourke died from cardiac arrest, arrest, arrest and septic shock caused by undiagnosed intestinal stenosis. She was only 12 years old. I remember, well, I personally don't remember when she died, but I remember hearing the stories about it, little Heather, and she's not the only actor actually died during the, um, the whole filming of Poltergeist, but also there was another actress who died. It wasn't during the actual filming, I believe, but she did die during the whole spiel of it. Alright, so Dominic Dune was the actress I was trying to recall. Um, she played Dana Freely, one of the daughters of the family in Poltergeist. Now, she was killed by her boyfriend, her or her ex-boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney, in her West Hollywood home. She went into a, a coma, but she never regained consciousness, and she died five years later. Five days later. Um, also, in a controversial court case, Sweeney was convicted of voluntary manslaughter in Dune's death, and he served three and a half years in prison. So he's out now. So, But another attribution to the whole cursed film. Also, some people believe that, um, now I'm gonna take you to the scene in Poltergeist with the skeletons in the muddy pit. A lot of that was claimed to be real skeletons, and they were supposed to be fake, but in all actuality, they were real human skeletons from India, and they believed that the spirits of those dead people were angry, so they cursed the film. And also, I just want to add that um, 
I was watching a special on this cursed film not too long ago. And a lot of people think that, oh, you know, people, um, filmmakers and stuff like that use real human remains all the time. That's how they're realistic. But in all real, in all due defense, like, there's this thing called respect. Unless they were sold to you and that's so like you have to have the people's wishes before doing that I don't know that's just me like how do you know that you had permission to use somebody's bodily remains or the did you get permission from the family of the deceased persons I don't know this is strange to me our next guest of honor for this episode is the Twilight Zone the movie created in 1983 so tragedy hit when director John Landis who who had fallen out with co-director Steven Spielberg due to unsafely cutting too many corners during production, and he pushed ahead with a stunt despite windy conditions. So when a helicopter flew out of control, it came crashing down right into the precise, precise position where the actor Vic Marrow and two child stars were killed. They are killed with the six whirling blades and falling debris. The incident which saw Landis acquitted of manslaughter charges led to greater regulations to on-set safety. I just feel like that's not really a cursed film, but that's more of like a tragedy. Maybe hopefully he learned his lesson and will be less careless and selfish in the future if he ever makes a film again which I have never heard John Landis me personally again and here's to our next little film here which is Ghost filmed in 1990 so Ghost may not be scary but it is still one of Hollywood's biggest urban legends and one of the biggest films it is said that the poltergeist child star who we just mentioned, Heather O'Work, haunted the film set. So crew members claim to have continually heard the footsteps of an unseen figure as well as a child laughing. The film was shot in the same soundstage where O'Work had filmed the scenes of, as a child actor. So they feel like... She still comes. Heather works. She still visits the soundstage where she worked as a child during Poltergeist. Which is actually isn't scary. It's more just like a haunted soundstage. Not really cursed at all though. Actually I think it's kind of sweet. Alright, our next film here which is a really great film if I don't say myself 
you may have heard of it, is the 2005 The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And I have actually mentioned this before on on Debbie Bond Paranormal on Facebook, but I'm going to tell y'all for the listeners on this podcast. So, in 2005, Jennifer Carpenter had a strange occurrence when she was filming. Now, she actually played um, Emily Rose. And one of these strange occurrences was that she says that her radio would continually turn on by itself whenever she got home. And I do believe it was the middle of the night. I think it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. But the song, which is really quite strange, the song that would always play, she says, was by a band called Pearl Jam, and it was the song Alive. Now, if you're familiar with that song, you know how it goes, and it was stuck on one segment of the lyrics. It was still, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. And I'll play that for you so you can just get a little bit of a a little bit of a taste of what that was like, but it's actually quite frightening to think about. So she had a ghost visiting her who obviously liked Pearl Jam or was trying to tell her something. Who knows? We move on to our next film. In 2005, The Ring 2 came out. So, the watery death of Samara in the ring was a freak accident that happened during the production of the film's sequel, which was even stranger. The entire set flooded, and the lead star, Naomi Watts, also claims that she felt old vibrations on set that she couldn't explain. You gotta wonder sometimes. So, I bring us to our next film. The 2010 film Insidious. It was Insidious' hospital set where the strange occurrences seemed to go down. While numerous members of the film's cast and crew complained about feeling unwell whenever they stepped foot onto the set, but there are also claims that a buzzer from an unoccupied floor of the building would continually go off, and what caused it still remains unknown. I actually did not know that one. When I looked this up, I was like, huh. I mean, I knew the stuff about, like, Poltergeist and the exorcism of Emily Rose and the exorcist and the omen, but actually I did not know about Insidious. And that experience is actually quite frightening. And the scene that they're talking about is... It's about... Towards the beginning, toward the middle of the movie, where they find out that... Well, it's in the beginning of the movie, really. Where they find out that Dalton is in a coma. And they can't explain why he's in a coma, really. He's in a sleep that he can't wake out of, and nobody really knows why. That's that hospital scene that they're talking about. My God, though. That is strange. 
All right, we bring us to our next film, which is The Innkeepers. The 2011 film had a lot of cast and crew associated with The, inke- the Innkeepers who, experience- who experienced paranormal activity in the form of lights switching on and off for no reason. Doors would swing open and shut, frightening all who were present. Cast members even received phone calls that, when they answered them, would have no one on the other end. The hospital where the film was shot, the Yankee Peddler Peddler Inn in Connecticut, is known to be a very big hotspot for ghost for ghost hunters. So that's like, oh my god. <laughs> And our next film here is the 2012 movie, The Possession, starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan. The Possession didn't believe in ghosts before before filming began, but as he walked away, he was convinced that they were real. According to the film's stars, odd occurrences plague the set, which included the explosion of light bulbs and cold breezes following, following them all around. The possessed box of the, at the heart of the film was later destroyed at a storage facility fire. So it's safe to say that this film had some heavy, heavy spiritual attachments and some bad juju. Moving on to another star of the evening here. We got the 2013 film, The Conjuring. Alright, so Vera Vamiga, who played the real-life paranormal investigator, we all know as Lorraine Warren in The Conjuring, was so uneasy about making this film that she left the script outside her house. Despite this, one morning she woke up with three slashes on her laptop screen. The eeriest thing, though, happened when the family whose real-life haunting the film of the who the film is based on, when they visited the set, the crew claimed that a strange gust of wind followed them wherever they went which is really quite strange and our next film here is the is Return to Babylon which was shot in 2013 silent film Return to Babylon is said to have captured demonic activity on film director Alex Monti Kanawati used an old school camera with black and white film that he mysteriously found in a bag. But when he watched back what he caught on camera, the lead actor actress faces had morphed into demonic looking creatures. So that there is another film that does I think it's the I cannot remember the film that that happened on, but it was a film in the 90s, but its name completely evades my mind right now. 
And our next spot is Annabelle, 2014's Annabelle. The director, John R. Leonetti, claimed to have seen three fingers drawn through dust on multiple, on set multiple times. Terrifying because the demonic doll at the heart of the film only has three fingers. Producer Peter Sarfran went to tell the Hollywood Reporter about some strange, some strange goings on about during the film shoot. So I quote him right here. We shot in the this amazing old apartment during building near Koreatown, and we had some funky stuff go down. He says, in particular, the first day that the demon was shooting in full makeup. We brought him in the elevator. He walks out and walks around into the green room to where we were holding the talent. And just as he walks under, the, the entire glass light fixture falls down on his head. And in the script, the, de- the demon kills the janitor in that hallway. Which was totally freaky. End quote. So maybe something new that <laughs> wanted to stop him from killing the janitor, obviously. Actually, <laughs> I've seen... I'm just going to throw this out here. Now, this is my personal opinion. But in all the Conjuring universe, okay? In the film universe of the Conjuring, which includes the nun and all the Annabelle stuff, I've definitely got to say... The Annabelle films are 150% my least favorite parts of the um, universe. But you guys, you know, you let me know what you think is the worst part of it. Because I, I know, I'm just not a big fan of scary dolls in my horror films. I don't know about you guys, but honestly, it's just like kind of cheesy to me. You can put Patrick Wilson in it. You can put... Vera Famiga and it doesn't matter if you use good actors. It's just a cheese ball. But that's just me. <laughs> and our last movie for this segment is 2018's The Nun. Now, clearly Annabelle isn't the only Conjuring spinoff that seems to have been haunted. So, Corin Hardy, who directed the nun says he saw two men in a room he was filming in a castle in Romania after completing the take he turned to the men assuming them to be members of the crew but they vanished and also chillingly they would have to have they would have to pass him to leave the room so there was no way that they could have just you know popped off without him noticing or seeing them so they were definitely ghosts. Alright, that's it for this segment of this episode. I'll see you guys in our second piece. I hope you stay with us. And if you haven't already, check us out on Facebook.com. Same name on here on Anchor.com, Demi Mond Paranormal. We post everything in everything and anything paranormal so 
all is welcome, and all are free to post whatever they want. it's safe to assume that most of us or at least most of us who are into paranormal stuff or horror films or whatever have you have at least heard of the film the 2009 movie a haunting in connecticut am i right but what's the real story behind this creepy little film well in just a couple moments we're gonna dive right in so sit back and hang tight Alright, so this film, it was directed by Peter Cromwell. This film is allegedly to be telling the true story about Carmen Snedeker and her family through Ray Garten, the author of In a Dark Place, the story of a true haunting, which was written in 1992, but he has publicly distanced himself from the accuracy of the events depicted, he depicted in the book. Okay, so the film here actually depicts a fictional family called the Campbells as they move into a house that um, was also formerly a mortuary. And they do this to, you know, lessen the strains of their very sick son who has cancer. But, as we all know, sooner or later, that things do not, <laughs> things do not appear to be what as they seem because there's something dark hiding in the attic, like hiding in the basement of this former mortuary. Supernatural forces are occupying this house. So let's get the inside scoop on what actually happened in real life. Is the truth scarier than the movie? Let's find out. Was there really blood in the water in the basement as his mother was cleaning it up and she doesn't see it, but the kid, the cancer-stricken boy does? Who knows? Let's find out what actually happened in the case of the haunting of Connecticut. So tell me, is this something you want to hear from any of your children as a parent? Mom, this house is haunted. Mom, this house is evil. We must leave immediately. We must leave right now. That is definitely something that no parent would want to hear their kids say, especially a kid that's sick. But that's what Common Reed heard her son say one day that would literally haunt her two decades later even. I bet you she still has those creepy memories seep back into her memory of the old creepy house on Meriden Avenue in Southern Southernton, Connecticut. So, in real life, the house that they moved into was really a formal funeral home, so the movie got that correct. Um, and also her son really did go through cancer through a nearby clinic, so that's why they moved in there. 
So I'm just going to jump into what they experienced while sitting in this creepy old house. Well, according, according to Carmen Reed, when she was still with her husband and her three kids and two nieces who all lived in the house, they all regularly experienced a malevolent force that took form, different forms, okay? It would, would on occasion slap, grope, threaten, or otherwise freak them the hell out, okay? So it began the night they moved in. And to quote Carmen Reed, as I am right now, she says that my son started seeing this young man with long black hair all the way down to his hips. She recalls, he would talk to my son every day. Sometimes he would even threaten him. Other times he would just stand there and say his name, which was enough to scare him, unquote. During the course of his treatment, Philip's cancer went into complete remission. Now he's 35, now he's in his 30s, he is a father of four who makes his living as a trucker. But when he started claiming that someone or something was trying to communicate with him, doctors diagnosed him with another problem, schizophrenia. So Philip has schizophrenia now, which is really quite sad. You battle one constant battle, and then now you have another one. Um, Carmen Reed also remembers watching as her son started to play cruel jokes on family members, like not locking his little brother in a, in a chest, and then forgetting that it ever happened. She eventually sent him to live with relatives, where he immediately stopped hearing voices, she says. So that is this abs- So it was that house who was plaguing him with all these things. So with Philip out of the house, Reed claims that dark forces turned their attention to their 18-year-old niece. And I quote her when I say, One night, my niece said to me, Aunt Carmen, it's coming. Can you feel it? She recalls her niece clung to her in fear. She says that I peeled her back, and I saw the impression of a hand going up, up underneath her nightshirt. Carmen Reed also says, that is when I knew for sure that I was dealing with something supernatural. So that's when she contacted her parish priest, then the local archdiocese, then a host of exper- experts in the paranormal. A researcher named John Zaffis says that comparatively to the any of the other houses that he ever um, explored. He says that the ghosts in those houses seemed like Casper, the friendly ghost, compared to the ghosts that were in Carmen Reed's home. And John Gaffis is no spring chicken in this researching. He spent 36 years researching paranormal phenomenon. One particularly summer 
summer night, Zaphis claims to have seen a spirit descend the main stairwell and say to him, and I quote the ghost when I say this, Do you know what they did to us? And that's what the ghost said to John Zaphis, who was who was in the house at the time. In this spook, they live in crap out of them because, and I quote them when I say this, all I wanted to do was get my car keys and get the hell out of there. <laughs> According to Reed and Zaphis, two priests visit the, visited the home, but they're too scared and they left. So a third one, who they did not name, was finally able to rid the house of its evil once and for all after a three-hour exorcism, according to Common Reed. However, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese said no unauthorized exorcism was conducted at the house. The house still stands in Southington, and the current owner has not reported any disturbing visions, except for all the tourists who drive by hoping to catch a glimpse of ghosts and other good stuff. Well, not even good stuff, really. As for the Reeds family, they all report being sensitive to paranormal forces since their time in the creepy house in Connecticut. Sometimes it serves them well, says Reed. I sold real estate for a while, she says. If I didn't tell you, if I wouldn't sell you a house, you can bet it was because I knew it was haunted. Well, believe you me, that I find that I would actually appreciate that. <laughs> She's actually saving you a boatload of trouble, in my humble opinion. So what do you guys think? Do you believe that story, or do you think it was all made up? You let me know down in the comments, or send me something on here, whichever of you. So our next film that I just want to bring to the light here is a 2014 film called Deliver Us From Evil, which is based off a book by Ralph Starchy. Ralph Starchy. And this book is called Beware the Night, written by Sarchi himself and also Lisa Collier Cole. And this, okay, so in Deliver Us from Evil, it stars Eric Bana as Ralph Sarchi, and it also has Edgar Ramirez, Olivia Munn, and Son Sean Harris in. Joel McHale also stars in this film. Now, I've seen this film a couple times. It's pretty good, actually. I've also, I also have the book as well, and I haven't gotten around to reading it, but I will sometime in the near, in the near future. Hopefully, if I get through all the rest of the, the books I want to read. Alright, so I'm going to start us off a little bit in the movie okay so the film opens up in a 2010 firefight in a palm grove in iraq okay 
and three marines discover a cavern and start to scream as they find some some type of ancient writing on the wall and they scream and cry and freak out as all these birds and stuff fly and flap and somebody is seemingly possessed okay and as they're screaming and running away the video feed goes black and that's in the beginning of the movie Alright, so then it cuts to the Bronx, New York, and it's 2013. So we have a veteran special operations sergeant who is Ralph Sarchi. And it starts out that he's standing over a corpse of an infant who is dead in a darkened alley. So he and his partner, who was named Butler, resume their nocturnal patrol for the 46th precinct. Okay, so they get a call for a dom- domestic disturbance on the radio. And Sarchi probes this, the dispatcher for more information. And he finds out the, that the male of the address is a former Marine. So he suspects him of being having some type of PTSD. And he thinks he's still fighting the war. And also, he tells his partner, Butler, that his, and I quote, radar is going off so he has like a feel out for these things he just knows what's gonna happen so they get to this place alright and they encounter a shirtless and heavy tattooed marine named Jimmy Trapner who insists his wife is okay but when his wife lifts her head the officers can see that she's badly beaten so they end up taking the guy to jail and the guy, the heavily tattooed guy, draws a knife on Butler and starts fleeing the house on foot. But Sarchi catches up to this guy and beats the living crap out of him. So the officers know that, now the, the, one of the strangest parts is that the officers know, notice that Jimmy's fingernails are cracked and bleeding. And so they assume that he's mentally ill or on drugs. So that's the end of that. And I'm just gonna quickly gloss over that. Sarchi and Butler are called to another place in the Bronx Zoo where a woman has thrown her toddler into the moat surrounding the lion enclosure. So they find the woman in a lemur pen and she is furiously scraping the ground. And after they try to apprehend her, she repeatedly she repeatedly and rapidly recites the lyrics to Break On Through, which is by the doors. And Sarchi notices a commercial painter inside the lying enclosure. He enters the pen to, to interrogate this mysterious man, but he is attacked by lions and merely escapes. So, also... Whenever they drag the deranged woman back to the, to the to the jail cell, they find out that her name is Jane Krenna, and they drag her back to a mental health facility in where they meet a Jesuit priest named Mendoza, who believes that she is is possessed. All right. So that's just a couple of this 
movie that we're talking about. There's just a lot of spooks going around. And now this movie is based off of the encounters that Ralph Sanchi had in real life as a cop going around New York. Alright, just to be clear about that. So before we get into the true story about this movie, I just want to gloss over one more aspect of the film that I really thought was interesting. So, Sarchi and his partner, Butler, respond to yet another domestic disturbance call, and they go to a house of three people who, the family, I'm going to assume was either Italian or Spanish, whichever one. And in this house, okay, it's a mother, a father, and a son, and the son only speaks the English. Mother tries to speak English, but it doesn't really work. So they arrive at this house, and they're complaining of supernatural occurrences, okay? Um, in one of the, one area of the house where light bulbs constantly burn out and the candles will not remain lit. The family explains that there were two painters working in the basement where most of the, the disturbances occurred. In the basement, Sarchi discovers a badly de- decomposing body of one of the painters who is David Griggs. So when he arrives at David Griggs' apartment, which is overrun by cockroaches, and refuse they find business cards for a painting company, as well as a picture of Griggs with Jane Crenna in a child she threw into the enclosure at the zoo. In another picture, Griggs is painted with his is pictured with his marine uniform next to Jimmy Tratner and a third marine who was Santino. They realize then that the Santino guy must have been the painter at the zoo. So hopefully you guys Try to get the picture I'm painting. Here, this is all intertwined. All three marines have something to do with rather strange occurrences is going around in New York. Now, like I said before, this is all based off of experiences that Ralph Sarchi has had himself. Now, in real life, Ralph Sarchi is Sarchi is a retired NYPD sergeant and traditionalistic Catholic demonologist. He has written a book, as we mentioned, Beware the Night, which details many of his paranormal investigations. And as we all know, the, these investigations were accounts on the basis of the film Deliver Us from Evil. So, Sarchi served 18 years as a sergeant in the South Bronx Princeton and was a member of the Street Crimes Unit working undercover stopping crimes in progress. Although he was raised as a Roman Catholic Christian family, Sarchi's faith waned, but now has been fully restored. As such, Sarchi describes himself as a committed Christian and he, possess- he possesses a relic of the true cross. Ralph Sarchi, along with his partner, Mark, Mark Stepanskik, carry with them wooden Christian crosses and holy water. 
to tackle demonic infestation of the city. He assists in Christian exorcisms. His career as a Catholic Christian demonologist has included regularly meeting with and accompanying Ed and Lorraine Warren on their cases. Sarchi states that demonic possession can be identified by signs including unnatural strength, unnatural strength, speaking in different languages, having knowledge of events that one would have no way of knowing, a man speak, a woman speaking in a man's voice, and a person making animal noises. He states that he prays every day, and among these prayers are the Dominican Rosary. When interviewed by The Blaze, he stated that he has never accepted a penny for his assistance and has to fund traveling expenses himself when he takes on cases. Also, you may know Ralph Sarchi as the guy who hosted Destination, Amer- Destination America's series The Demon Files, which started airing from November 1st, 2015. Let me know if you ever watched that show. I've watched it a few times, but I thought it was pretty good. But I only saw it like a couple times and it just went away. I don't know if it's still on or not.
Hello, and welcome back to our third segment of this very fascinating episode, if I don't say it myself. So we all, well, not all of us maybe, but we're all pretty familiar with the story of The Conjuring if you watch horror movies. And especially the first Conjuring here that came out in 2013. Well, what's the real story behind it? We're going to get into that in just a moment here. So, in the 2013 film, we start off, you know, with a happy little family coming to their new home in Rhode Island. A big old farmhouse, right? The parent family moves in and almost immediately there are strange occurrences within the home, whether it's the clock stopping at exactly 3.07, or it's the dog dying, or it's the birds flying at the house, or it's the strange smells and noises and knocks on the walls, whatever have you, or you're getting strange bruises whenever you wake up in the morning and you can't explain them. Now, The Perrin family, at least Andrea Perrin, has been one of the sisters that I know who have actually written a book, and it's called House of Darkness, House of Light, and they were actually pretty on board with the filming of the movie based off of um, the accounts that were portrayed in the film. So get to the facts of what actually happened in real life what the actual parent family you know what they encountered what they you know what actually happened to them personally because fact is stranger than fiction alright so this happened in the 1970s, okay? And, actual, the pa- and also, the parent family actually stayed in the home for 10 years. Otherwise, protected, predict, depicted in the film that, you know, they just stayed there for like a short while. Actually, it was about a decade that they stayed in this haunted house. So, I want to start you guys off with one fact i actually come to learn here. And one that is that the neighbors advise the parents to leave their lights on at night. So the old farmhouse that the parents moved into apparently was notorious around the whole area for some reason or another to the extent that the paranormal activity was realized. Allegedly, the neighbors advised the parents that they had best leave their lights on at night though the reason behind that advice was not actually given. In the beginning, the activity was just small occurrences that could be easily explained away as part of living in an old house, such as noises and objects shifting. Nothing that could be immediately labeled as paranormal. According to Cindy Perrin, one of the children who grew up in the house, she says that Things would either be moved all around in a different position than how I left them, or they would all be shoved up underneath the bed, and I would go to my sister's 
of course, you'd go to your sisters and ask, Hey, what did you do with my toys? And they'd say, Nothing. Why would I mess with your toys, Sunday? No one discussed any of these events until much later. As it turned out, the house was the site of many violent acts, including suicides, rapes, murders, and drownings. There were plenty of reasons for the neighbors to tell the parents to to sleep with their lights on until after the sun went down. (laughs) And also, I want to add that Cindy Perrin also was locked in a trunk in the basement by an unseen force when she was playing hide-and-go-seek with her sisters. She said that she found a big, large trunk and, you know, she thought, oh, this would be perfect. He had no hook or latch or anything, so she could easily get out of it. But as she, you know, climbed down into the box, you know, she started to get hot and started to basically suffocate. And the box wouldn't open. There was a force would not that would not let her open. And she thought that she was going to die in there. She felt herself starting to run out of breath. But thankfully, her par- her sisters found her just in the nick of time. So, in the beginning, when the, pe- when the parents first moved in, the, the ghosts were kind and benevolent, alright? Before moving into the farmhouse, the parent girls were five close sisters who were always kind to each other. However, with their toys shifting around to different rooms when they weren't looking, suspicions and accusations began to creep into their minds. The sisters started to fight with each other and their family had to intervene to stop them. That's when Cindy, the the second youngest sister, decided that she would share her toys with the kids who were visiting her in her bedroom. And playing her with her toys. At first, the children believed that the ghosts were obviously walking around their home and were kind and benevolent, or at least harmless. The spirits served as playmates and even babysitters, and the children enjoyed their company. The girls even claimed that the ghosts tucked them in at night, kissed them on their foreheads, and as Cynthia says, when we were when we first moved into the house for the first two months there was a woman that came in and kissed me every night on the forehead and that i thought it was my mother it was my mother andrea her older sister said mom smelled like ivory soap and this beer smelled like flowers and fruit so there were some good ghosts and some bad ghosts i wonder if the ghosts who were benevolent were kind, like the woman ghost who kissed the kids on the head, were protecting them and made sure that even through the 10 years that they endured in this house, they were going to be fine in the end, no matter how scared it was. They were, they were, the, they were their protecting spirits. I think they were. So, according to the children, malevolent spirits began to fill the house so the parent children didn't think much of living with in a house with good spirits 
they would go out and enjoy a family day and not think about anything else of their interdimensional life back home. When they began to speak out about their experiences 30 years later, they even had a fondness for their benevolent yet ghostly roommates. However, the parents were aware that something was profoundly amiss and were experiencing something more sinister. Their father, for example, would open the front door and be overwhelmed with by a putrefying smell. They didn't know how to talk to their mother about what was going on, but something was apparently beginning to trouble, if not torment her. Soon, the bel- Soon, the kind ghosts that the children had become accustomed to were replaced with evil spirits. One day, Sydney said to Andrea that a disembodied voice was telling her about seven bodies that were buried in the wall. There were later, they later came to find out about the number of people who had died either in the house or on the property both people who lived there and people who were just passing through. Before too long, the family would be awakened every morning at 5.15 by an overwhelming overwhelming smell of rotting flesh. Andrea claimed that that a malevolent male spirit tortured the five little girls, but she refused to provide any details of the horror. The ghost of Bathsheba Thayer threatened the family with doom and gloom. Now, the parent family matriarch, Carolyn, was the one who was seemingly to experience the worst aspects of the haunting. Shortly after the family moved there, she claimed she was visited at night by a woman in gray whose head was hanging at her side. The woman told her to leave or she would be driven out with doom and gloom. After consulting with the demonologist Ed Lorraine Warren, she became convinced that the woman haunting her was the ghost of Bathsheba Thayer. Now, Bathsheba Thayer lived in a farmhouse in the 19th century and had four children, but three of those children died. She was accused of sacrificing an infant to Satan by stabbing it in the back of the neck with a knitting needle. Though the evidence could not be held up in court, when Carolyn received a mysterious stab wound in her leg that seemed to be similar to the one that killed the infant, Lorraine Warren suggested that Bathsheba had taken her knitting needles to the grave and was using them in her in her hauntings. As Andrea Perrin says in an interview, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house, and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position. Also, I want to add an account that Carolyn Perrin um, told in paranormal survivor or paranormal witness it was paranormal witness okay and she said that one night she was woken up in the middle of the night okay to the smell of smoke and 
She was laying in bed right next to her husband. She was woken up to smell smoke when there was a few dark cloaked men who entered the bedroom that the couple was sleeping in. And then finally a woman appeared, dressed in a cloak as well, I believe. And they all had these long black torches or in staffs or whatever. And they started banging them on the on the wooden floor of their bedroom with you know, with a rhythm. And they started chanting this incantation. And she accounts that she looked at the woman who was obviously the leader of this little circle or whatever have you and she said that you know she was had this long gray hair and she was all withered and creepy looking but in the sleeves of her cloak there was not hands but pieces of jagged splintered wood and that's when like we said before she was stabbed with a mysterious needle which I just, I just thought I had to mention that. It was absolutely, that sounds absolutely frightening. So I want to add that after she was stabbed with her, with the Sheba's knitting, knitting needles, both the ghost of Bathsheba and the mysterious men in the smoke all disappeared after that. After... Carolyn cried out in pain after being stabbed and woke up her husband from being stabbed with that knitting needle. So, moving on. Carolyn Carolyn actually believed that Bathsheba Thayer's spirit inhabited her body. Bathsheba's haunting in the hospital allegedly began as harmless poltergeist activity. The family members might find themselves prodded or poked or pinched and objects would be mysteriously moved from one place to another. Much was attributed to the friendly ghouls until things got much, 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 much worse. <laughs> the local lore about Bathsheba Thayer, she was a witch and she had made a pact with the devil but she was granted useful beauty but at a high cost. She was turned into a stone upon her death and as a ghost she was condemned to condemned to torture people possibly out of jealousy for beauty that could never be hers again so we have Carolyn Perrin a beautiful woman in the wife of Roger Perrin and Andrea Perrin believed that Bathsheba wanted Roger and was prepared to do anything to get him. Anything. So Carolyn claimed that Bathsheba tormented her both emotionally and physically, as if the ghost was actually possessing her. She claimed that Bathsheba stabbed her in the leg with a netting a knitting needle and was continually hiding things, making her feel as if she was going insane. At the least she's at the least. She always felt drained. But Roger, on the other hand, only saw Bathsheba's sweet side with loving caresses and innuendos. Of course he only saw that, huh? Join us in our next segment as we 
dive deeper to the true story of the conjuring. Welcome back. So let's continue where we left off. So we discovered who Bathsheba Thayer is. Now what are we going to do about her? So a family friend contacted the Warrens, hoping to help their dear friend, the parent family. So in the movie, Carolyn contacts and Lorraine Warren to see if there's anything that could be done about the hauntings occurring at their house. She was desperate to relieve the family of the horror that was unfolding, but in real life, it was not Carolyn that brought them into the story. They were in a, near, a nearby Connecticut 
They're in nearby Connecticut, where they were working on other paranormal cases activities. Andrea said, we never actually contacted the Warrens. Our friend Barbara went to see them in Putnam because they did things all around the area. We, they weren't informed about us. The Warrens immediately decided to go investigate what was going on. Perhaps the reason why Carolyn didn't contact the Warrens is that she was afraid that no one would believe, listen to her. Reportedly, when they come, came to visit, she was ecstatic that somebody believed her and might try to help. Why didn't the father, Roger, try to contact the Warrens or anybody else? Because for a long time into the family's nightmare, he simply didn't believe it was real. So he was really just kind of a skeptic on all the whole things. In fact, the girls claimed that at first, Roger was actually unhappy about somebody else being brought into the situation. So the family actually claimed that Ed Lorraine Warren made things worse. But in the film, they were, you know, the Warrens made things better and cleansed the house of all the evil spirits. However, the parents claimed that the Warrens didn't do anything to make the ghost leaves. In fact, they made everything much, 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 much worse. The Warrens began by talking to each of the family members about what happened. They later conducted a seance with the parents in the basement of the home. Lorraine never talked publicly about what happened during the ritual, but she was clearly disturbed by some of the things that she saw. Andrea claimed to sneak down the basement during it. She said, My mother began to speak a a language that was not of this world and a voice that was not hers. Her her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. The Warrens decided to visit the family over the next decade. However, their best intention efforts did not alleviate the paranormal activity of the house. Though the family claims that The Conjuring is based off of real events that happened in the family, its plot was mainly drawn from consultations from Anne Lorraine Warren. However, the explanation may be that these aspects of the stories were told by the parents and the Warrens that, that just didn't match up with each other. So why, you ask, why didn't the parents move out of their home? Well, the problem is that all their money was tied up in the house. They couldn't afford to move anywhere else. Since these accounts happened in the 70s, the economy had tanked due to failed policies and crises in the Middle East. Carolyn and Roger had poured all their money into the house, and during the 1970s, no one had money to buy a 200-acre farm. It was losing value by the day. Also, no one, no matter how good of friends they may have been, would have taken in five teenage girls for an uncertain amount of time. 
the family was forced to remain in the haunted house for nearly a decade. The girls would leave the house whenever they could. When Andrea left for college, Cindy took over her bedroom right away, eager to eager to get away from the ghosts that were haunting her bedroom. When Cindy finished high school and was able to leave, she claims that she cussed out the spirits and told them to do their worst to her because she was leaving the next day, which between you and me is not a good idea. She practically ran away from the house, relieved to be gone finally. Also, Roger and Carolyn finally sold the house in 1980. They went down to Georgia to rebuild their lives and never looked back. But also, the parents believed that Bathsheba's ghost still haunts them. The parent family was invited onto the set for the filming in the production of The Conjuring. At first, all of them were willing to go, but just beforehand, Carolyn changed her mind and decided not to attend. Perhaps she was unwilling to dig up that part of her life, but other people in her family needed the opportunity to begin to find closure and lay it to rest. While the family was visiting the set, Andrea Perrin claims that a rogue came out of nowhere and slipped through the facility. It knocked down everything in its path, including cameras, lights, and people. The family immediately assumed that the wind was part of what they called Bathsheba's curse. At the same time that the wind blew through, Carolyn fell and broke her hip. Carolyn claimed that her, from her hospital bed that night, Bathsheba did not want to be exposed. One theory for why the family continued to be haunted by the ghosts that tormented them in their, for, in their farmhouse was that the spirit was connected to the people rather than the territory. It was willing to leave the farmhouse, but unwilling to leave the family go. Also, the house's occupants allegedly have a long history of paranormal disturbances. It may be the case that the spirits of the farmhouse featured in The Conjuring were more attached to the family than the territory. In fact, Andrea and Cindy Parent described their transition to the house as a calling that began eight months before their parents even found the property. They loved the house. Cindy described it as a piece of heaven inside hell. However, there have been more strange occurrences going on there for centuries. The property has been the site of many violent acts, from suicides to rapes to murders, as I mentioned before. These sisters described it as an overwhelming feeling of sadness that would become that would come over a person within just a few minutes of being there. No matter how happy the person had been before, Andrea Parent said, and I quote, Everyone who has lived in the house that we know of have, has experienced this. Some have left screaming and running for their lives. The man who moved in to begin the restoration of the house when we sold it left screaming without his car, without his tools, without his clothing. He never went back to the house and 
consequently the people who owned it the adjacent the adjacent looked land over land owners never moved in and it sat vacant for years also however the house's current owner disagrees her name is Nancy Sutcliffe who now owns the property that the parents used to occupy and is adamant that in claiming that the house is absolutely not haunted she insists that ever since purchasing the property in 1987 there has been there have been no paranormal disturbances or supernatural events not even from the from the kind spirits that visit the visited the parent family shortly after they moved in which has led her to make attempts to discredit the whole story there could be several explanations for this current state of affairs one is that the ghost that terrorized the fam the parents family had simply left they probably didn't go immediately when the parents moved as there are reports that subsequent home owners were tormented while they were in the house. They may have in some way or another followed their parents throughout their lives because of the degree of hauntings that they experienced after they left the house was incredibly diminished. Another explanation is the story that the parents told was completely false. After all, the movie The Conjuring is based more on the case files of Anne Lorraine Warren than the autobiographical evidence presented by the family. However, Andrea Perrin wrote a trilogy called House of Darkness about their experiences. Another possibility is that the ghosts are still present and waiting for the right person to begin the haunting again. There is another theory that Bathsheba there wasn't the ghost haunting the family. Um, so one of the spirits torturing and even possessing Carolyn Perrin was apparently the ghost of Bathsheba Thayer. Came from that? Now that came from Lorraine Warren. Now Carolyn had a perfectly concentric wound on her leg that mysteriously appeared about the time that the Warrens began to investigate the haunting. Lorraine saw it and immediately presumed that it was made by Bathsheba Thayer, who was accused by of stabbing an infant in the neck, in the back of the neck, as a means of sacrificing the child to Satan. Lorraine claimed that Bathsheba took the knitting, the knitting needles to her grave and used them in hauntings. Lorraine's story is based almost entirely on assumption and cir- the cir- in circumstantial evidence. The people who were unable to prove that Bathsheba actually did stab a child in the neck with a knitting needle. Knit- knitting needle. It is also entirely possible that crime never even transpired. In fact, there is no historical evidence that such a trial even took place. Additionally, the ghost never claimed to be the spirit of Bathsheba there. If there indeed was an evil spirit haunting the family, and the family insists that there was, 
It may have been some other entity that was not associated with another person's ghost. The, another theory is that, pro- that she probably Bathsheba died of a stroke. There's no actual evidence that she hung herself, but a physician claimed that she died following a strange bout of peril paralysis which was prob which was probably due to a stroke and she was buried next to her children and her husband and the rest of that witchcraft stories probably was due to local lore saying that she didn't actually have the best reputation in the world she was you know quite the nasty matriarch of the family in her family, she was said to beat her staff and whatnot, so that's not too good. But of course, then again, back in those days, they got realized that she was she died in 1887. So, if you did anything that people thought was strange or something that anybody didn't like, you were accused of being a witch. And if you had one child that died under strange or unusual circumstances. It doesn't even matter if there's no proof. You're accused of being a witch. Join us next for our third for our final segment of this episode. Alright y'all, so before we do our outro and end this episode for tonight, I just wanted to add a little snippet from 
and Lorraine's case files, the Enfield haunting. This is the the um voice of Janet Hudson in the ghost who or the entity, whatever you want to call it, you let me know in the comments of of her possession. Here's a little snippet that I found. Here, I'm just gonna play it for y'all. Listen out of your own discretion. Alright, that was it for you. And you guys let me know in the comments what you think. And about the whole case, really. Alright. That's it for this segment. I'll see you guys in the outro. I want to thank you guys so, so much for joining me on the 11th episode of Demi Mond Paranormal Podcast. It was a real joy recording it and doing the research and presenting it to y'all, all my listeners from all around the world. I've noticed I got some listeners all the way from Sweden and Germany and all, all over the place, really. America is one of the biggest places, but I think Ireland is another big one. So you guys keep on pulling them in all around the world. It's really, it's a great pleasure doing these podcasts weekly. Um, I think we're going to do another episode by Friday. And we're going to do it on some haunted country. I'm not sure which one yet. But I'll let you know during the course of the week. Once again, thank you for joining me. And I hope to see you again either on Friday or sometime next week. Alright. Thanks and good night from Demimond Paranormal.